commandment. Rather, idolatry is the perverse desire to domesticate deity. Idolatry is the perverse desire to domesticate deity. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But I think it's an ever-present danger for us. And and so to dig into this, we're going to take a look at first what is being prohibited in this commandment. Uh, Secondly, we're going to look at what it looks like to break this commandment today. And, And thirdly, how and why we must flee this sin. Actively, aggressively flee this sin. So let's dig in. First, let's get to the bottom of what exactly is being prohibited here. And, and let's draw out that meaning. So uh, in verse 4, and the beginning of verse 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to, to them or serve them. So in the main, I think this is a pretty straightforward commandment. A carved image or, or any likeness referred to an idol. And the ancient world, especially various spiritual entities, and I'm, I'm being deliberately vague on that point for a moment, uh, various spiritual entities either existed or or they were imagined to exist, and they'd be represented in the handiwork of human beings. And those representations, or we could say idols, could be worshipped and and served. And and by all accounts, God is pretty thorough about the types of things they couldn't create for this purpose. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in the waters. So if you're like me, you've you've probably always thought it rather silly that people would make something with their hands, call it a God and worship it. That just seems nonsensical. It seems ridiculous, and and you know what? One could be forgiven for thinking that it seems a little bit superstitious. But that's not exactly what the ancients thought was going on. It's not what they were they thought they were doing. So it's, it's a misconception, at least, of the normal practices of the ancient Near East. And, and there are parallels, there are similarities uh, in, in some of the continuing uh, and, and large-scale forms of idolatry that we see in some of the world's other major religious systems. They're similar, they're different in some ways, but they are similar in some other ways. Doug Stewart, a, a prominent Old Testament scholar, explains it this way. Uh, is a quote, he says, when, for example, a statue of a given God was carved and certain ritual incantations spoken over that statue to cause the essence of the God to enter it, the statue was then understood to become a functioning, functioning conduit for anything done in its presence from the worshiper to that God. So you see, the idol wasn't God or wasn't a God itself. In fact, that's true of all the the religions that I'm familiar with uh, that continue to use idols and and practice idolatry. They don't see the image as in itself God. Different variations on how they put the two together. 
but I'm not familiar with any that see the craftsmanship as the God itself. But it wasn't a nothing either. So after the pronouncement of the correct ritual, uh, sort of a magical incantation, it, it, there was a connection made between this spiritual figure or deity and the representation, the figure, the idol. It's almost as if all these little statues and, and figurines are imperfect but true doorways by which these spirits could enter the world of mankind, be present, and interact with human beings. Specifically, a person could bow down before an idol, and the spirit would recognize and appreciate the worship. Alternatively, offerings like food and drink could be made. In fact, that was essential. As Stuart suggests, feeding themselves, for the gods, feeding themselves was the one thing, at least in the ancient Near East, that a god didn't seem to be able to do. They, they had almost limitless power to do all kinds of other things in our world and beyond our world, but feeding themselves was a difficulty for them. So it became incumbent upon the worshipers to provide provisions. And it, that obligated the spirit then to act on the worshiper's behalf. Right? You've done this good thing for the spirit. Now the spirit needs to enter into this world and act with some sort of uh, reciprocity on your behalf. So this becomes kind of an interesting question. Were these practitioners worshiping empty statues? Or were there really various spirits that inhabited them? I'm not going to be uh, definitive on that point. But as I study and as I learn and as I see things in this world, the more and more I think that it's possible and maybe probable that at least some of these gods that were worshipped were at least often very real. We'd probably use the term demon to describe them. Uh, we tend to think of good spirits as angels and bad spirits as demons. I'm not sure the Bible makes that neat distinction for us. One of the things that's interesting about Scripture is it very rarely talks about these spiritual entities that are beyond this realm. And when it does, it's, it's, it's these glimpses, it's in passing. And I, I think that's intentional, to be honest with you, because there's really only one that we are supposed to be concerned about, and that's Yahweh. And I, and I think he intentionally doesn't give us much. We, we need to know that they're real, we need to know that they exist, but we get scarcely little detail about them. And sometimes you pick up books on this stuff, and it's just all full of speculation and stuff that's just made up out of people's heads. And, and it's not based on what's in the scripture, because if you look at what's in scripture, there's very little detail about what, what is an angel, what, it, what is a 
demon? What is a spirit? What is, it just doesn't give us a lot of detail. And I think that's because there's really only one that we need to be focused on. And that is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnisapient, omnibenevolent, all-powerful God who made everything, Yahweh. And I think, um, I, I, I think too, that if we knew more about these things, it, they would be attractive to us. We might be drawn to, to pursue them. But our focus is supposed to be on Yahweh. Again, I'm not saying all the time uh, what they were dealing with was real. But I think if the more I think about it, the more I look at our world, the more things I've seen, the more I think, yeah, you know what? Sometimes there probably was a reality behind what they were up to. So while we're not supposed to focus on them, because we're supposed to focus on Yahweh, I think it's dangerous to deny the reality of these creatures. And they are creatures. They are created things. Both benevolent, like we think of angels, or, or malevolent, like we think of demons. Our tendency is to sort of have a naturalistic monotheism, or what some have called moral therapeutic deism. Uh, the idea is that for the most part, we live our lives as if the only things that exist are the things that we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell. And, and until we need something, we're content with that world. When we're suddenly finding ourselves in need, then we ask God. But we have a tendency to act as if the supernatural realm doesn't exist at all. And I'd suggest that that's probably the, the spiritual equivalent of denying that theft and rape and murder exist. And then walking around public square naked in the middle of the night with a stack of Benjamins duct taped to your back. That, that is roughly the equivalent. There are real dangers. So let's not ignore the reality. Let's not so quickly write off idol worship as something that was done by superstitious Neanderthals. But you can imagine, I think, that this sort of uh, idol practice might quickly deteriorate into a self-centeredness. And after all, the worshiper is, is not going to make offerings for very long based on how much he or she loves the deity. Imagine a very powerful crime boss. He's so powerful that he can basically get away with anything he wants to get away with. But there's an undercover agent who knows what he's done, and he's got the goods to bring the mob boss down, and he's got that information stored away in a safe deposit box somewhere with an anonymous informant who knows if anything happens to him, the contents of that box get released. Now that detective is pretty safe because he's got something that the mob boss needs. But he also gets one other thing. To the extent that he cooperates with the mob boss and says, I personally am not going to release any information about what you've done and what crimes you've committed so long as you use that great power of yours to uh, get some things done for me here and there. That's sort of the situation 
that, that was going on with this idol worship. You've got a very powerful deity who could do just about anything that you could want a deity to do, but they've got a weakness, and that is that they need those provisions. They need food and drink. Whatever reason they couldn't feed themselves in their mind, I don't know. And so there was sort of a quid pro quo in exchange for worship and provision. The, the deity would act on the person's behalf. And so you might feel yourself inclined to provide a lot of good meals for this deity, for this spirit, in order to get some stuff in return, right? In an agrarian society, that's what this was, that they're, they're keeping animals and they're farming crops. And, and in an agrarian society in which one's lineage was both your honor and your means of protection, this good stuff was often about production. You wanted your crops to produce. You wanted your animals to reproduce. And of course, you needed children. And so very often, this idolatry centered around fertility cults. And that brought a host of sexual uh, acts into the worship process. Now, does the Bible specifically get into all this? Well, yeah, in many places it does. But right here, there is more a simple prohibition of anything like this. But it is important to understand the context into which the prohibition was spoken. From the vantage point of the ancient Israelites, these spirits resided as prohibited in the heavens above. So making an image of anything that lived there was prohibited. The ancient Egyptians, from where the Israelites had just come, uh, had gods that were made in the images of terrestrial and, and sea creatures. And, and so making an image of anything that lived in those places was also prohibited. But what's particularly striking about this all-inclusive prohibition is that it also rules out making any graven image of Yahweh. I think we take that for granted, but, but pause on that for a moment. We are not to make any likeness of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And that's huge. Look, polytheism was the order of the day. That was the, the de facto reality that most of these people lived in. There were a multitude of gods, and you had a national god, and you had a regional god, and you had a family god, and all those other gods were real, but there was two or three that you paid particular attention to. And of course... Every one of those gods had a, 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 a representation, had a physical form or something that could be conceived of. And you could create idols that they would inhabit and that they could come and, and, and enter your world and, and interact with you. That was the only type of deity that was known. 
And so if, if God had just left the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That would have been scandalous enough. It would have been crazy enough to simply say that there can only be one, and I am that one, and all those others are not anything you should be paying attention to. That alone would have been scandalous. But he goes further and says, you can't even make an image of me. And that leads into our second point, what it looks like today. Verse 5b says, or the second part of verse 5, I'll say, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now what does this prohibition have to do with jealousy? With God being jealous, what could it possibly mean that God is jealous? And isn't jealousy something that's bad? And the answer to the last question is, in a word, no. And to expand on it, uh, jealousy isn't bad. It's neutral. Like all, or, or nearly all, emotions, jealousy is itself not good or bad. But jealousy is a, a particularly insidious emotion because it seems to bend toward evil more than a lot of our other emotions do. The circumstances under which jealousy is a proper response are pretty small. Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary defines jealousy this way, at least one definition, and the one I think is probably closest to how it's being used in Scripture. Vigilant in guarding a possession. That's jealousy. Vigilant in guarding a possession. And the problem with human jealousy is that we typically are vigilant in guarding something that we don't have a legitimate right to. And so jealousy becomes controlling, becomes demanding, it becomes possessive, and it becomes envious. But if we have a legitimate right to something, our jealousy might be well-founded. Let me give an example. Consider a husband who finds that another man is trying to woo his wife. That husband has a legitimate right, or the other way around, a wife who's finds out that some other women are trying to flirt, come on to their, their husband. and You have a legitimate right to that relationship with your spouse. And, and you'd be rightfully jealous, and you'd be right to take action to protect the relationship with your spouse. Not any action, but you have right to take some action. Um, you have a right to defend that relationship because you have a legitimate right to that relationship. So there's a good jealousy. But what does that have to do with this command in particular? And, and I think the answer is, is that God is jealous for his proper worship. And that takes two forms. On the one hand, and, and here's where there's some crossover with our discussion last week, 
Because Yahweh alone is worthy of our worship and affection. He will not tolerate the worship of any other spirits, entities, demons, angels, deities, whatever you want to refer to them as. He made us to worship and serve him, not any other god or spirit. And as our maker, he has a rightful claim on us. And he will jealously pursue that claim as necessary. And it often is necessary. In the ancient world, the deities were often just pragmatic. Did you need help with your crops? There was a God for that. Did you need help with love? There was a God for that. Did you need assistance in war? There was a God for that. It's very pragmatic and also selfish. Now, most of us moderns, we're, we're beyond that. We believe, most of us, that if there's a God, it's one God, and he or she is the big one. But when we talk to God, what do we talk to him about? When we talk to him, what brings about our talking with him? Don't we often fill up our prayers with our own needs and wants? Often only in our time of need and want? When we pray to God for our finances... Are we praying to Yahweh or are we praying to mammon? When we pray to God for our health, are we praying to Yahweh or are we praying to Asclepios? When we pray for wisdom in our decisions and we don't check our answer against scripture, are we really praying to Yahweh or are we praying to Sophia? I'm not saying it's wrong to petition God for these things. That's not my point. But I am suggesting that if we only go to Yahweh for our needs, on our terms, we may have more in common with the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Canaanites than we are willing to admit. John Calvin wrote, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. Idolatry has its origin in the idea which men have that God is not present with them unless his presence is carnally 
exhibited, physically exhibited. Of course, in no small part, John Calvin had in mind the veneration of saints in the Roman church. I won't belabor the point except to suggest that sin is very often a cunning thing. It tries to excuse itself in loopholes and exceptions. The Israelites were surrounded by Phoenicians, Babylonians, Hittites, Egyptians, and others. And each had plenty of deities, and each deity had its valuable role in their world. But God said, none of this. Come to me, and me alone. And yet in time, many who were called by the name Christian ascribed spiritual power to other disembodied spirits. Those of faithful Christians who had died. They can be prayed to. And each has a particular area of focus. And each is recognizable by a, what else if not a graven image. Its likeness. Traveling? Pray to Anthony. Financial trouble? Perhaps Matthew. Health issues? Well, that depends. There's Dylan for mental illness and Agatha for breast cancer. Diabetes? There's Paulina. Incipient forms of the same problem. But there is a second way in which Yahweh expresses his jealousy. I imagine that none of you like to be misunderstood. And, and, and worse than being misunderstood is being mistaken. Especially by those you love. Uh, over the last 25 years, I've been in a regular battle with my mother. And if she listens, she's going to kill me for saying this. But it, it goes something like this. I'm making vegetable soup tonight. Mom, you know I, I hate vegetable soup. No. You love vegetable soup. You used to tell me all the time how much you like my soup. You know, my, Mom, that's never been true. <laughs> you make lots of good stuff, but I never liked your soup. Oh, that's not true. Wait, why would I lie about this? Why, why would I concoct this false narrative of my history? And I'll give her some benefit of the doubt, maybe because she makes so much good food. Almost all of it's so good that she just forgets the rare dishes that I dislike. This came up the other week. Uh, they were in town uh, a couple weeks, weekends ago, and she started talking about how much I like ham. And I had to explain to her that I really, I really don't like ham all that much, at least not like the, that main course, Easter. So like breakfast ham and things like ham, pork products, love pork products. But like that Easter style ham, I just, it's, not, it's not my thing. And uh, it started on one of those back and forths about whether this is true or not. And she frustratingly eventually wanted to know why I'm always bringing up stuff like this that I don't like, which isn't the case, but <laughs> I just don't like people telling me stuff I don't like. Um, and, and, it, and it hit me. And I told her, you know what, Mom, the reason why it bothers me so much is because it makes me feel like you don't listen to me. Like, I don't know how many times I've mentioned the fact that I don't like the ham that much. And so when you keep insisting that I do like it, it makes me feel like you don't listen to me. 
I mean, if I tell you I don't like your stir-fry a hundred times and you still talk about how much I like your stir-fry, it's disconcerting. <clears throat> Imagine, ladies, you're on a, a, a date with a guy and you've gone out two or three times and you're at a restaurant and he sees a friend from work and, and he waves the friend over, you know, and he comes over and he introduces you. He says, hey, Johnny boy, this is my, this is my girlfriend, Janie Pooh, Janie Pooh Smith. And, and, you know, only unfortunately, while your name really is Janie Pooh in this example, your last name it's, it's not Smith. And I imagine that date is going to be over very quickly. Or it's going to be a very long one. One of the two. Um, <clears throat> it's not going to go well. You just don't get stuff like that wrong. God wants us not to create images of him. Because any image of him will distort our idea of him. Deity is not humanity. Creator is not creation. At a risk of asking you to sin, what does God look like? In your mind's eye, if you conceive of God, or when you think about praying to him, what do you picture? I imagine that many of us Picture an old man with gray hair, maybe a beard. And, and that's ridiculous, but while it's not unique in this way, it was a common trope of the Renaissance. Uh, that you, you think about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. His painting of the creation of mankind is, is probably one of the most striking and influential pictures of God in human history. And I'm certain it's not a coincidence that Michelangelo's God comes so close to our mental picture. That's not a coincidence. But is it right? Now hear me out. I love, I love the arts. I'm not a prude. In fact, I, I rather enjoy the Sistine Chapel for its exquisite artistry. But God is not a man. He's not grain, and he's certainly not white. And whether or not it was Michelangelo's intention or not, or any number of other Renaissance artists who conceived of God in the same general guise, he created for us an image of God that has stayed with us for centuries and has massively impacted our conception of what God is like. And that's unfair to God. He wants no images made because any image we make of God will necessarily diminish him. God cannot be domesticated. He cannot be domesticated into an image. And he cannot be domesticated into a picture. Any attempt to showcase God in such a way will at best, at best, highlight with gross imperfection some true qualities of him while ignoring other qualities of him. The, the Sistine Chapel in this way is no better, and in fact much worse, a resemblance to God than a, one of those freehand cartoon sketches that you, you get 
you know, your best friend says, you've got to get this done. And so that you sit down, you were at the Cleveland Flea yesterday, and there was some artist sketching people, and your best friend says, here, I'm going to pay. You're going to get your, your portrait done, and, you know, your forehead is blown out of proportion, or, or your nose is whatever. You know, it, it, it exaggerates a few qualities and completely ignores many others. It's not who God is. I think we are so bent on these physical forms that Michelangelo resonates with us. And even if we push it out of our minds, I know even I still return to images. I'll, I'll pray and I, I will place in my mind there some image, some picture of what God or, or maybe his abode is like. Maybe you don't do that. I'm not saying I do that all the time. But I, I, I do sometimes have to shove these images out of my mind. I have to rip them out of my heart. Because that's how I break the second commandment. Not in wood, not in stone, but in the temple of my heart. I conceive of God in a form that's not becoming of him. So how and why we must flee this sin. This is the, the third point. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's start with the why, the how and the why we must flee this, and I'll start with the why. And the first and most important reason why is that, is what we've already stated, it does an injustice to God to represent him as something he's not. And really, in actuality, that should be enough for us. We should love God so much that we should not wish to injure him in this way. But because he's merciful, he gives us more. And he gives us both a, a threat and a promise. He says he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. Sounds very harsh, doesn't it? I mean, really, really unfair, unjust, in fact. I've always heard it explained that the repercussions of our sin have a generational effect. If your father squanders all the family's money gambling at the jack, you're probably going to enter adulthood with a, a leg behind some of your peers. Even if you did nothing in particular wrong. Yeah, that makes some sense. I've never found that quite satisfying. And, and, and again, uh, to reference Doug Stewart again in his book on Exodus, he, he elucidates this idea in a way uh, that I was unfamiliar with, which I think is far more satisfying and far more likely to be true. Which is that the idea of to the third and to the fourth generation, it was sort of an idiomatic Israelite saying that basically amounted to this. It doesn't matter if you didn't come up with this bad idea. 
It doesn't matter that you're doing what your parents taught you or what their parents taught them or what their parents taught them. There can be no excuse for trying to conceive of God in physical form. Isn't that oftentimes our excuse for sin? Is that we know no difference. We either do it in our own hearts or we excuse the sins of others because we, we say, well, they don't know any better. That's all they've ever been taught. It's all they've ever seen. It's all they've ever known. God says, no, that, that's not an excuse. And this would be very relevant for the Israelites because soon the generation that comes out of Egypt would be dead and they'd be gone. And, and eventually they would leave the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan and they would enter a new land of foreign gods and foreign people. And these subsequent generations would be tempted to learn from their neighbors. How do you grow crops here? Well, you pray to this God and then you pray to this God and you offer this ritual. How do you, how do you have success in the land? How do you get your sheep to breed? Well, you, you, you know, that they like to eat in these pastures over here. But then we offer sacrifices to this God and this God in this land. And that's how we get our sheep to breed. In fact, after a while, it might become sort of the baseline cultural norm that we worship Baal or Asherah or that we worship El or Dagon. And it might be tempting to say that we're only doing what we've been taught to do. In fact, that is exactly what ends up happening in the history of Israel. In fact, it looks like, if you, if you look at the scriptures, look at the history, I, and maybe it was my, my growing up, but I just always imagined that the Israelites had this great society of, of worshiping this one God and, and this, this devotion, and they were unique among all nations. I think sometimes we teach it that way, but have you read the Old Testament? Have you read Judges? Have you read... Joshua, have you read the Kings? Have you read the Chronicles? Have you read the Prophets? It sure looks like monotheism. Worshipping Yahweh and worshipping Yahweh alone was often the exception. It's what they were called to. But it's not often what they practiced. The cultural norm, the default cultural position was the worship and acceptance of these other gods. And in fact, sometimes it comes out in the prophets where you can almost hear the voice of the people the prophets are speaking to, thinking the prophets are kind of prudes. They don't really get the culture. They don't really get that this is how we do life. And I think we need to remember that because it can be very dangerous to take our baseline cultural norms, 21st century Western world, and just accept those things as normal, as our default operating position, and we never really question those things. And it's those things that, that they're so deeply ingrained with us. We were born with them, and we breathed that air for 20, 30, 40, 50 years that we don't know anything else and and when people try to take them away from us we respond 
often violently because it's not just an attack on our culture, it's an attack on my identity. And when we read things in Scripture that point out issues in our own culture, we have a tendency to either, it just goes over our head, we just don't even hear it, or we try to, to uh, massage it. Well, that can't really mean that. That must mean something else. And, and we try to massage it into meaning something that's more comfortable for us. Or we just reject it entirely. That's a danger that I think we often face, even those of us who are called Christians. And God says no. He will hold us guilty even if we are merely doing as we've been taught, even if we are merely following the cultural expectations around us, there can be no excuse. But there is a promise, and, and God highlights the, the betterness of the promise when he says that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's promises for faithfulness are greater than his threats for unfaithfulness. So how then do we flee? How do we flee? I think there are three things I would suggest. I think they're scriptural. One is to say no. And I said it sounds, sounds stupid, it sounds silly, it was just Nancy Reagan. But again, these ideas can creep down to our hearts so deeply and they, they, the roots just, they, they pierce the flesh of our hearts and, and just grab on and hold in there tightly, that sometimes we just need to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to conceive of God the way my mind wants to conceive of God. I want to conceive of God as he's revealed. He's, he's not the God who helps me with my money. He's, he's not the God you know, who, who helps me find success at work. He's not, he's not the God who... It helps me make good decisions that I'm just going to make for myself anyways, but I want him to bless the things that I've decided to do. He's, he's not this little pet. He's not. He is the, he's the God of the universe, and he's holding all of this stuff together, and he's sovereignly in control, and he's, he's big, and I can't possibly hold him in my hand. And, and I gotta, you know, I gotta adore him. I've I've got to recognize my sinfulness. I've got to thank him for his goodness to me. And, and I've got to look deep and see his goodness even when the world seems dark and, I, and I'm tempted to say that he's cursed me. I need to be thankful and see how he's actually blessing me. And, I, I, and then in that spirit, maybe there's things I can go to God for in prayer, but even then, even then my motives are, are selfless. You know, I want him to be 
not selfish, thinking what are the things that would make my life better, but what are the things I can ask God for that extend His glory, that extend His goodness, that reveal Himself to other people so that they might worship in spirit and truth. And so even the things I ask for start to take on a different character. And, and, and so I just need to say no to these little pet deities that I want to create in my heart. And sometimes I know I've got a, a pet, you know, you, sometimes you know you've got a pet deity is, is when you start thinking, boy, this bad thing happened to me because I didn't pray to God about that first. You know, when you start thinking that, that the universe is about you or this good thing happened to me because I was in church and I read my Bible, you know, that's idol worship. You're placating the God. You're saying, I did this little thing for you, you did this thing for me. Or I didn't do this thing for you, and so you're going to punish me. That's idol worship, isn't it? This idea that we have some sort of little quid pro quo going on with the God of the universe. It's dark. And that's not who he is. If you know God, God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has wiped away the stain of your sin. It's not that there's no consequences in this life. But if he's wiped away the consequence, if he's wiped away the stain of your sin, and he looks at you and he says, righteous, even though you're filthy, that God is not sitting there doling out punishments and, and, and rewards on the basis of your little meager offering. And so we need to say no. We have to rip those things out of our heart and say, no, I will not be compelled to sit God on my mantle, to put God next to my big screen TV, to put God on my dinner table. I won't be compelled to make him so small. But we also look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if, if Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh, the God of the universe, taking on flesh and living in our place and dying in our place so that all who come to him by faith have forgiveness of their sins, can be restored into right relationship with God and can properly worship and serve the creator once again. That's the, the good news, that we don't have to die in our sins, that we don't have to be separated from God, but that we can be brought back into communion with God. That's the, the good news. And so we reflect on the cross, not to make an image in our heads, but we reflect on what happened on the cross and we reflect on what Christ did for us to know that it's complete. It's done. And so I am not in a, a mode of trying to complete my checklist of to-dos 
and, and avoiding my list of don'ts in order to curry favor with God and to make sure that we're all good. That's not the Christian life. That's not what Christ has bought us for. And, and if you don't know Christ, I'm telling you, he, he wants to purchase you into something better. He wants to crumple up the list and throw it away. The record of your accomplishments, which are small, and the record of your failures, which is large, he wants to destroy. That's good news. But it's freeing. Because in Christ, we're accepted. Despite our failings, despite our faults, despite, despite our struggles, despite our sin. And so we no longer need to be attracted to, to an idolatrous view of God. Because I'm not trying to curry favor with him. Because I believe, I trust his promise that I already have favor with him. Not on the basis of what I've done but on the basis of what Christ did for me. And so I can let go of that guilt. I can let go of that shame. And I can recognize God for who he is. The God who could destroy me. The God who owes me nothing. loves me and I find in that a motivation to do all of these things not because it makes me right with him but because I've been loved so deeply when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ Kills our need for a pet God. Because we know that the promise that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And so I don't need to be running to God with every selfish need as if he wasn't going to do me good. I'm not saying don't bring needs to him. That's, don't hear that. But we don't need to run to God with every selfish desire of our hearts because we already know his promise that he's working all good things, all things for our good. And so there's no fear in that. And I don't need to run to him to placate his wrath. To get him on my good side so that he doesn't destroy me. I don't need to do that. Because Jesus already did that. Took the wrath on his own body. So that it wouldn't come on mine. So fight it actively. And look to Jesus Christ. And let's do away with our idols. Whether they be wood. Whether they be stone. 
whether they be the images in the temple of our hearts. Let's pray. God, Yahweh, we conceive of you too often, not as you are, not as you revealed yourself to be, but as we want you to be. You are the God of our important values too often. The God of our success, the God of our money, the God of our health. I pray that we would love you for who you are see you more clearly in all your fullness, to take hold of all the things that your word says that you are and all the things that your word says you are like and to adore those things and to love those things and to embrace those things, to be moved by those things and to be satisfied in you. May we never forget the cross of Jesus Christ by whom and through whom we can be assured that all the things of this life come together for our good and by whom and through whom we know that all the punishments and penalties and wrath are stripped away. And so we're loved and we have peace and we have security and a God who cannot be domesticated, who cannot take any form that we could imagine. Forgive us our attempts to do this. May we know you better. In Jesus' name we pray.